Hi, my name is Paul. I'm 29 years old and I'm a Korean Kiwi living in Sydney. My lifelong goal is to constantly better myself, mentally, physically, and spiritually by learning from my own or others' life experiences. As I'm facing the realities of adulthood, I've come to a realization that pretty much everyone goes through the same struggles of being an adult. I feel everyone has a success story that can help you and others get through the common issues. Okay, so what I really love about people is that everyone has a different story. And to be honest, you can learn so much from their failure and success stories. In fact, I'm very lucky to bring on my special guests. Will all happen to be my amazing friends with brilliant minds and stories to tell. We'll be discussing a variety of topics that revolve around the common issues or the changes in our surrounding culture that my friends and I faced. These include things like effects of childhood traumas, the changes in their dating culture, to creating your own career pathways. Anyways, hope you can find the answers you've been looking for. Or simply, I hope you enjoy the mindful banter between great friends. Thank you for tuning in today and welcome to another session of the Better Me Experience. All right, so hi everyone. Uh, I've got a special guest with me today. Uh, his name is Raymond, aka Ray. He's 29 years old. He's done some inspiring work in chemistry during his PhD, and now he's building a company and a brand that one day will become the next household name. Anyway, thank you for being here, Ray. Awesome, thanks for inviting me, Paul. It's always good to speak with you. Always a, always a pleasure. Um, so let's start the podcast by telling the audience how we met. I like to always introduce my guests and how we became friends. Yes. So, I do remember. I, I remember the year as well. It was 2011 and first semester. Stats 302. I remember seeing you. And I'll tell you, I'm, I might have told you this a while ago, but I'll, I'll let you know again. The first thing that um, I noticed about you, Paul, was that you were a very fashionable guy <laughs> and you had a lot of um, beautiful ladies around you and handsome people. And I thought, wow, this guy seems quite cool. And that, I, I approached you and spoke to you and you had told me you were, you were stage two, so I, stage two student doing stage three paper. So I thought you were quite intelligent there as well. But yeah slowly came to know the truth but yeah it was a good time um i remember working on assignments with you for stats 302 and then later i found out that you were in chemistry uh i don't think did we do any chemistry papers though because no yeah I so that's what i don't remember <laughs> mm, um, no because because yeah it's kind of funny how you you actually fit in quite well with the year level above as well i'm sure you had a lot of friends in your uh, year level as well, but um, 
we, we just, I think we just had that one class. And because yeah. even in honors, you, you were, did you, yeah, I don't know about that, but yeah. No, I do remember. So we had um, Stats 302 and it was just one of the, I think, one of the hardest papers I've ever done. I think when I look back now, it's not that hard, but I think at the time I was just like, fuck, it's the hardest paper that I've chosen as a second year. But anyway, um, I do remember, yeah, having that kind of conversation and um, in the stats tutorial room. And I think you were mm. a tutor then as well. And um, I just right. remember you being super helpful. Like everyone else was oh. just like, meh, like, you know, I'm just here to do, you know, cover shift. But you're actually like really, really helpful. Um, oh, thanks, man. Yeah, that's one of the things I was quite disappointed with, with the other stats um, tutors there at uni. Man, they just saw it as like a job, like mm. clock in, clock out sort of thing. And, and we all had like our sort of specialist papers, but I would just, I would just help out with whatever, even if I hadn't had that paper or like it was just some maths problem or something like I'd sit down and try to work it out. Sometimes I couldn't, but it was, it was about that process. So yeah, yeah I'm always keen to help as well. And that was a fun time being a stats tutor then. Yeah. It was great. And that's, that's what I still like love about you because you're just so mm. helpful. Um, and just so open to everything, like open about new concepts. Mm-hmm. You know, the fact that we've been having all these life, um, you know, meaningful chats, uh, Insta days, you Good know, times. those late nights, mm-hmm. and so um, even yes. late nights at uni. Mm-hmm. Um, I think yes. we just both went through the similar struggles during our PhD, and that's how we I think we bonded. Yes, absolutely. Um, it was it was a tough time during PhD. I, I never actually, I don't know if I regret it, but obviously we're good friends now, but I, I always felt like reaching out to you because we could see the anxiety. Mm. Maybe others couldn't, maybe they, didn't, they couldn't see that, but I, I could definitely see that in you. And I just want to say, I'm sorry I didn't reach out to you those times. It was quite odd. And I remember you used to bring your crunchy nut box to uni and you were, you were like there all the time and it kind of felt a bit robotic and I thought like, I wonder if Paul's in like a good headspace or not, but. Oh, yeah. look, I'm going to be honest. Um, I think I've mm-hmm. been honest in other podcasts as well, but I was in a different headspace. Yes. Um, you're right. I was a very anxious person mm-hmm. and uh, we can talk more about this later on, but I, I was always very anxious about the future, but yes, but now, um, somehow I've built that confidence to not, not get to me. So I think we can talk yes. about that actually. I think that'd be a very interesting. Yes. One. That's um, one of the things why I was so, so proud with your, um, I don't know if you remember, you gave a talk at, uh, what are those uh, PhD showcases in yeah. your third year, you gave that talk and, you know, obviously the content was great. What you were talking about, the experiments with how uh, the polymers contract or, uh, are in random coil arrangements. But one of the things that really struck me about the talk is having known your story and what you've gone through, um, mm. just, I, I just felt like so proud of you, man, when, when you had when given that talk. And I'm sure lots of chemistry people at the time, not only was obviously the, the content and the science great, but just having known you and what you've gone through, like I'm sure like Andrew Chan and Harpreet and, you know, Casp, you know, all, all the people that, 
that were there in the labs, things like that, was, would have been so would would have been were so proud to see that that um, talk you gave. So I did it for you guys. You oh, know. awesome! Yeah, I had to represent the struggles that we all went through. Yo, yo, that's the one. And the thing mm. is, is that that really gave me the like the insight of of everything because essentially you have to explain what you've done something that's so complex mm-hmm. into very simple digestible um way right because everyone there is not in your field actually there's no one else in that room apart from some people in my group that know what i do yes and so i have to really break it down to basic abcs Mm. and give that talk in a in an interesting way because at the end of the day you know what is the point of you know, providing some, something of value if you're just going to cloud it with all this boring stuff. And unfortunately, you know, as humans, we, we like to be entertained and we like things that, that we like to emotionally react to. Yes. Um, but that also no, means that, you know, that, yeah. That's the key, key role of science, scientists, especially now, like modern scientists, we, we, I think modern scientists should be communicators as well and, and explain things in uh, down-to-earth terms, relevant terms, be more engaging. That, that's the whole uh, ethos behind my, my company is to get science uh, out there more, you know, amongst young kids. They're just so hungry to learn more, especially the young ones. Uh, if you give them anything to do with tech, they just pounce, pounce on it. So I, I feel quite privileged to give young students the opportunity to really grow what's in them naturally. Um, yeah, and I think more scientists need to be doing that. I understand there'll be some that just want to stick to the technical side and maybe they're extremely in- introverted. I myself would have considered myself extremely in- introverted in the past, but uh, especially in the last couple of years, I've really started to express myself a bit more and, and very keen to do things like podcasts and have meetings and and talk about my story and yeah i think that's amazing actually let's let's get into that um for those Mm. that don't know what you do um can you tell us a bit more about what you've done since your phd because a lot of people still think that when you've done your phd you just become a researcher and Mm. you're in the lab for the rest of your life right yes well, after PhD, I did do a year and a half of uh, postdocing at the University of Auckland, just trying to make sure, like, is this what I want to do for the rest of my life sort of thing. Um, but uh, working on sort of Arduino projects and little things on the side I was doing for that year and a half. And then I decided at the start of 2011, oh, sorry, 2019, um, to do that full time. But I, I also had, had a job, so, so my job became sort of the side thing, and my side thing became my full-time thing. Uh, I'm, I'm now teaching science to quite young students, actually, aged between 6 to 10 years old at an at a after-school learning center. Uh, it's not far from my house, just about 15-minute walk, so that's convenient, too. And... Yeah, my, my, my dad's been quite supportive of that, as well as my mom and my brother. Um, 
but especially the surprising thing is is my dad my dad's been quite supportive because normally in um sort of uh indian or asian cultures if you've got like a degree at that level you are expected to stay at the universities or be at a lab that sort of thing so um but i i had to convince my dad that uh, ed science education needed an overhaul, especially with tech, and that, that this was a great opportunity to learn more and to create a business. Uh, fortunately, my dad um, had has business experience. He started a coconut plantation in India when he was 17 years old. So he's always keen on um, new ideas. Granted, the foundations have merit, of course. Um, and so he's been helping me with funds as well. So that's been quite good too. Oh, I think that's um, really cool because I don't know that many people that came out of PhD that's pursuing their own, essentially own their own career, their own pathway. Yeah, and man, I, if I could touch on that point, man, I, man, during my PhD, I just felt so different from a lot of the other PhD students. Like I thought, that everyone would be super, and, and there are creative people, don't get me wrong, but I thought everyone would be on like a radical creative buzz. But as, as you went through, you, you sort of, maybe the people change or the system changes you, but you become more of a sort of conformist to the system. As you know, um, there is a, a strict sort of protocol and how, how scientists get funding. You can't be too ridiculous and wacky and things like that. But I, I, I thought that was the environment I was getting into when, when I started my PhD. Um, and so right now, what I'm doing now, this is what I thought I would be doing in my PhD. And going back before, like at university, this is what I thought I would be doing with my life in the workforce. And when it turned out that this wasn't what I was doing, going to be doing in the workforce, I decided to do it myself. And I've always been like that, you know, that kind of just fuck it, I'm gonna carve my own path. And in a way, actually, even doing PhD for me was a fuck it, I'm gonna do my own thing type um, activity because, um, and I'll, I'll just say this, for me, doing my PhD was a stupid thing to do. Um, because I knew at the time, like I always have these moments where like, like life gives you like two paths, right? There's the sort of standard path where, you know, like, yeah, that's what I'm supposed to do. And then there's the, yeah, that's not what I'm supposed to do, but it could be a lot of fun. Like there's a risk going that way. And for me, finishing honors, the sort of standard easy path was, um, getting a sort of, uh, uh, what do they call them? Like a position at a job, like a graduate position. Like you get a job as a high scholar and they, they put you into their training programs. I, I applied at like uh, Fonterra and did an interview there. But, you know, that kind of felt like, yeah, that's kind of what was expected. But doing a PhD at that time was like, that's the dumb thing to do and I'm going to do it. So I also applied for um, scholarships there and was very fortunate to to get one uh, with Duncan McGillivray. Uh, what a what a time doing research under him. But even my project 
as you know, having met Duncan, he's a very sort of hands-off supervisor, yes. let the student come up with the experiments, design the sort of path for it. If you need assistance with data analysis or understanding the instruments or even um, direction as well, he'll be there, but he likes to let the student work it out themselves. And I think that's been, that's been so good uh, for me um, even today, like what I'm doing with, with with my work, with the students, with building new devices. Um, yeah, it's, it's all just carving your own path. So I've been quite fortunate to have these steps that have led me towards that. Duncan is actually, yeah, he's such a phenomenal guy. Um, even when we went to like Ansto, he would just mm. come along and show us how to use these high-tech equipment. Yes. Um, and just the fact that he gave you that kind of freedom to actually give you, letting you develop these skills so you can use it uh, to, to build your own, something of your own. I think that's really yeah. cool. Actually, I wanted to yeah. ask then, uh, touching up on that, um, how did you make the connection that this is something that you wanted to do? So what, what made you want to teach something to the kids? Like how did yes. that, how did doing your, finishing your PhD with the skills that you have and the personal mm -hmm. skills that you've developed, how did that link to what you're doing now? Yep. Uh, awesome. So if we go back to Duncan, because it does come back to Duncan, my supervisor uh, during my PhD, uh, he was quite keen on doing like lots of different activities as well as research. And one of the things that we did was, was a sort of outreach in this initiative. I think it came along a couple of times. It was a corridor with scientists. Uh, which was a, a sort of event where scientists could meet with early childhood teachers, um, primary school teachers, usually year one, two, and three, where scientists would come and um, basically teach the teachers how to do simple experiments to um, pique the curiosity of students, uh, instill some interest in science. So we would do simple experiments like um, mixing uh, vinegar and baking soda, making that sort of volcano, blowing bubbles or finding out what floats and sinks, but even quite what would be considered complex, even like a red cabbage indicator for working out acids and bases. That was quite interesting going to those events. At the beginning, I was very sort of quiet and Duncan did all the explaining, but after, after a while, seeing how yeah, I guess I'll say the word hungry, seeing how hungry the teachers were for high quality uh, science education uh, was a big thing. Um, uh, we sort of just have this impression as scientists that, that everyone else has a good understanding of science, but it's not the case. Even teachers um, need, need a bit of help with, uh, especially their confidence as well in that sort of science area. And one of the things Duncan would always mention on the drive back back to uni was that he, he always felt quite bad um, after these uh, corridor with scientists events. And when I asked him why, like we did so good and the teachers were happy and all the experiments went well, which is, which is a rarity in, in, in real science. Um, <laughs> but he, he, he would always say that he, he, feel, he felt regret that we didn't, go deeper into the scientific knowledge, that it was all sort of whiz-bang experiments and things like that. And he'd always tell me that if, if we could find a way to go more deeper into the science, 
um, that would be a sort of better way of engaging students with the realities of what science is like. And, and so, to, so to bring it back to with what I'm doing today, uh, these products that I'm releasing, uh, I've, I've got a, a UV sensor that students build themselves. Uh, students as young as seven years old can even assemble these uh, devices. So that the whole thinking around that has stemmed from that idea that, that Duncan would share on the ride back that if there was a way to engage deeper with these students in a, in a sort of fun, relevant, engaging way. And that's, that's what I think when I'm designing these things. Uh, he always said that that would be something valuable. And I, and I always agreed and had kept that in my mind. And, you know, you let these things stir around in your head. Even, even two or three years, eventually you start connecting the dots. You watch YouTube videos. You see things. You remember things. People tell you. Scribble things down. Order stuff. Build it test it out is many iterations just like the scientific experiment eventually uh, it improves to a point fortunately for me where i feel it's become a, a viable product wow so that, quite lucky that, that is that is a journey i have to say because i i have i have tried pursuing my own career as well like i've tried mm. setting up my own companies uh, I wanted to do actually uh, while I was doing my postdoc in my spare time because I was already quite occupied uh, with research anyway. So mm -hmm. the small the small time that I had after work, um, I would I wanted to to create a product, a virtual product, and what really got my interest was augmented reality. And okay. so, like you, like you said, um, I went on YouTube, and I have no. I have no previous um, experience with coding whatsoever. Like mm -hmm. I, I had zero idea what it is, but like YouTube, I don't know. Like nowadays there's so much information and tools out there Yep. that you just need to find it and just build it. Right. Yes. And yes. Within, within a month or two, I built my first MVP. Um, awesome. What is what's what is it called? What what does MVP stand for? Um, most, vi most viable product. Yes. Or something like that. Yeah. That's right. Yes. So that just tells you that there's so much information out there, and I have to say, yeah, PhD has given me those soft skills, those mm. intellectual thinking, and the processes of creating something out of nothing. Yes. Um, but I, w I wanted to ask you, so how did you keep that motivation going? Because for me, I tried something that was a little bit, let's say, outside of my expertise. So I, I had mm -hmm. a lot of struggles in terms of building the product further because I had to really spend a lot of time refiguring out what this programming thing is and coding. Yeah. Um, eventually, I had a couple of my friends joining the, the company to work on it together, mm -hmm. but none of us were also coders. So there were these challenges that we've had. Yes. Business is something that I think requires a good mentor. And I think that's was something that I was kind of lacking at the time. Mm -hmm. So what, what would you say that made you keep going? even though you've yes and maybe some of the challenges that you might have had along the way mm-hmm mm -hmm. um i think it's what i'm doing now 
has been a long time coming. You know, I always felt as a kid that one day I would do, it's going to sound arrogant, but one day I would do something really, really important. I just, I just always had that feeling as a kid. And I always knew, like, I thought differently from, from everyone else. Like, obviously, we have our unique experiences, backgrounds, things like that. Um, but I went to a school, I won't name the school, but there was a lot of sort of uh, tall poppy syndrome and, uh, in my opinion, over, over emphasis on sports. Um, yeah, like, you know, there was a big oh, no, thing. I you agree. wouldn't want 100%. to show, yeah. yeah, you wouldn't want to show that you were into science or building things, uh, computers, things like that. So I had to keep that sort of to myself a bit. Um, but I, I just always thought like, that's the future. Even back in like 1998, like I remember looking uh, through like computer magazines and seeing like a computer that had 20 gigabytes of storage and thinking, my God, that's insane. You know, like I had a computer that could barely run Age of Empires 2 at the time. Like it was fucking laggy. Like you'd click and like three seconds later, the villagers would move. But I was stoked with that, man. I played that shit all the time. It was laggy as hell, but I loved it. And, and like I'd go to school and there'd be like two other people that played Age of Empires, but they weren't like at the level like I was playing, like knowing every single detail. Like sure. they just play it like it was, you know, Crash Bandicoot or something like yeah, that. Yeah. Not that. Not that there isn't detail in Crash Bandicoot either, but that that's the kind of brain I had. I just mm. I just had to fucking know everything about what I was doing. I, I was quite fanatical. And I think that's the kind of mind you need to have to to do research at, at that level as well. And I think that that's what back to your point of how do you get through it's it's wanting to know things at that level of detail. Um and yeah, it's that it's it's just a love of learning, like it's not trying to reach a, a sort of title or a, even a destination. It's just enjoying learning more each day. Like you were saying about coding, a lot of stuff is already out there on forums. Any question you might have, just fucking Google it. It's been asked like fifty times before. Just look up the forums. There's plenty of people have given helpful advice to others in the past. Like whenever I hear the word open source now, I think that means I can do it. That's my brain has, has mm. got that in my head. If I hear anyone say like this application is open source or this software is open source or this hardware, anything I hear open source means I can do it. I don't, I, I don't know if anyone else thinks that way. And I think it's a lot like what you said about the soft skills. And it's, I don't think it's exclusive to PhD. Like you don't have to, you don't have to have a PhD to believe that you can achieve anything. But having had a PhD, for, for me, what it gives me is that sort of confidence to know, like, um, to know, like, all these other people that are creating stuff, they're just like me, you know? They don't, they have struggle and they're learning as well. And they're not sure what, what they could be doing with this. And, and we're all sort of in that, in that same boat, helping each other out. So that's, that's, a, that's an exciting thing for me as well. Like, you know, when you're coming up as a teenager, you sort of think that adults have all the answers. And then when you become an adult, you realize they don't, there's lots they don't know as well. So 
Yep. And, and there's lots that I don't know. And it's about, it's about learning more and, and, and doing more. But with something like augmented reality, that's, that's quite like a high level of coding, especially when you want like objects to interact and you need the code to be able to recognize like what, what the camera is interacting with. Like that would take, if I was to learn that, that would take me a, a, quite a while. But I think that love of learning, like breaking it down step by step, like when I said the details, I kind of mentioned that there. So with augmented reality, like you'd have to teach your software to be able to recognize what the camera is seeing, right? So that involves uh, an image recognition algorithm and you'd have to train it. And, you know, it de depending on how real, your environment is like there could be even minute details that that should have a different category for what the software recognizes but you could start off simple like just with squares and triangles and get the software to classify them and things like that so that that's how i would do it always start off small build yes. up from there yeah no i love it because um i was talking to hamish on the previous episode about how do you build confidence and doing something and how yes. do you take the risk and to, to achieve your goals? And, and he said the same thing. It's, it's about the small steps. It's that's so important. And sometimes mm -hmm. we forget because we want to get to that end goal, right? Yeah. We want to be, we want to have that quick, get rich, quick scheme, you know, follow that path and become a yes. millionaire overnight. And we always click into that. We always buy it into it for some reason because yep. I guess it's our eagerness to, yes. to succeed. But it's those small steps that you really need to take, I think, to know yes. that even, even if this is the right path for you, you know? Absolutely. I don't know if you ever listened to um, Jordan Peterson. He's a yes, Canadian he's a, guy. Yeah. Oh, yes. Professor Fantastic. of psychology. Yeah. He, he has a phrase where he says, are you big enough to start small, right? Mm. Are you big enough to start small? And most people, they, like you say, they want the big thing and they want to see that success. And it's like going to the gym is a big one, right? Like you work out for like two weeks and these are the results, right? You need to put in the time. Now, I'm not one to tell another person to go to the gym, but I see that analog in what I do um, whether it's coding or designing products or teaching as well, you gotta, you gotta put in the time, you know, as they'd say in the gym, put in the reps. And it's the same with other things as well. Um, yes. Starting small is a big one. But another thing, if I want to mention as well, yeah. it's having an environment where it doesn't matter if you fail. And I think coding is such a good one for that because if you write a piece of code, and it fucks up or it doesn't do what you want it to do, it's fine, right? You just tweak the numbers, tweak some parameters, test it again. And I've tested, like, it's not like I write a fucking piece of code and it works. <laughs> My goodness. Like, I must have failed like 500 times. And then it gets to, like, tweaking such tiny little aspects mm. of it. But having that environment where you can fail and it doesn't matter and you can keep on failing like there's very little cost to doing that is so important like if you're in an environment where you have to succeed the first second or third time my goodness it's going to be so tough but if you're in a situation where you can easily fail it's like like someone doing a gymnastics or tightrope they've got that 
safety net there. They can do the, the act again and again. And there's this, well, you, there's still a risk there, but you've got that there. So, and, and I think with, with things on the internet, it's just so good, you know? Like even with your podcast, obviously the first few times you'd need to learn better skills, how to segue into different things. If we're going meta on this podcast, talking about that. Yeah, um, oh, I love it. Yeah, so you, yeah, you don't get things right on the first time. Like you can look through your recordings, improve, and that's fine. Like no one needs to know like how many recordings you've done before you get started. And in fact, you wouldn't think much of anyone who would look down on you for having, you know, even a hundred failed podcasts before you, before you started your thing. So having that situation and, and these days um, with the internet, you can fail over and over again. No one needs to know, just delete those files. Well, you can delete them. You can learn a lot from them. Awesome. I think having that work and progress mentality, I think it's, it's a new concept, I think. Because mm. I think throughout school, I feel like school teaches you that there's only just failure and success. It's really black and white, right? Yep. You either come first or you mm -hmm. come last. Mm -hmm. Whereas I think in, in what we do now or what I'm realizing mm -hmm. in, I guess it depends on the industry, but in most work, you can fail because failure doesn't always mean that that's the end. Yes. Right. Um, you can always implement changes to uh, failures to make mm -hmm. it more successful and just reiterating um, and just keep testing. And I think that's yep. where the new management skills come into, right? So before yes. the traditional one was you set out goals and timeline and everything is set out and you just have to meet mm -hmm. those goals. But in terms of software design, um, even just even everyday project management, you have to be very agile. And I yeah. guess there, there is a term for it, right? Agile management style. How, how do you measure success in your, in your own work? Because obviously, you know what I find in PhD, right? I find that in PhD, they kind of make you feel like a superstar. What there I mean by times. that is, okay, what, I'm, what I mean is that there are so many awards, there are so many mm. things that awards you, like systems mm -hmm. that awards you. Mm -hmm. And then you become a postdoc. And none of the shit matters. You can't even apply for it. You can't even apply for these poster presentations because it goes to PhDs, right? Sure, yes. So essentially, as soon as I became a postdoc, I realized you're just there to write research grant. It's, it's for real. It's, it's like, for some reason, all of a sudden, it's real, real game. Like, you have to produce results, write grants, mm -hmm. and survive yep. in that environment. It's yep. no longer, hey, you know, you can do it better. You know, here's some workshops. It's like, no, nah, fuck that shit. Like, you don't get this done. You don't, have, um, you don't have work for the next, you know, six months. Sure. So I found that really... A, a reality check for me coming out mm -hmm. of PhD because during PhD you can there were so many things that I felt like oh yeah I feel pretty good being a PhD student yes. as soon as you came out of it bam produce results otherwise yes. why, the fuck, why the fuck would I want to hire you 
Yes. In fact, uh, it was, it was, I think if we could use the word culture shock, even I got a bit of that from, from Duncan, my supervisor, when I did, when I was a researcher under him, uh, he would use terms like adding value and, and he even used the term KPI, which he just said it. Like wow, I thought really? he, he knew what I meant. And I, I, after he used it the third time, like the first time I thought he was being a troll, like, isn't this like business jargon? Why are you saying that? And then the third time I heard us like, okay, he's not, he's not joking. I have to ask him. I asked him, what is KPI? And he said, oh, it's key performance index. And, and, and I just like, what? Like, you know, that's the sort of, um, like that's what you'd hear in a sales team. You know, <laughs> have you met your sales and have you interacted with your customers and your key performance index isn't quite as high as it was last month. And, and Jennifer's doing more sales than you and all this stuff. And I was like, like, oh, wow, I never thought like, we would be in that environment. Like sciences should be about being more creative and sometimes you can get into slumps and things like that. But having this sort of, you know, publish, publish, publish uh, attitude can be a bit detr detrimental. Maybe some people thrive in it, um, but I don't, I really didn't like that about it. That's yeah, not what I thought science was. Yeah, this whole gamified system and it, it's, mm. I mean, we can go into the details of how the whole structure of publishing is just so yeah, fucked up, I guess. Like, universities need to pay money to get access to publicly funded research. That's so stupid. You're paying twice for it. We've already paid for it. It comes out of taxpayers' money. And then we need to pay these companies more to access publicly funded research? What the fuck? It should just be available. You're just true. paying twice for it. And, 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 and there are all these scientists who like, are struggling to get on these editing teams of these journals. And, and the whole system is like not what we should be doing. Yet because of, you know, CVs and, you know, you want to be on the editor. So like people smooch up to you at conferences and all this, all this crap. It's, it's actually a big detriment to, especially the young scientists coming up who thought it was all about, you know, passion and creativity and helping people. That's what they sold us. That's what they, well, maybe not directly, but that's what I thought I was getting into. You know, I kind of, there's kind of feeling of deception there as well. But, um, yeah, that, that, that whole KPI adding value, like, man, I, I almost felt, I never did this, but, and maybe Duncan will hear this one day, but I almost felt like just sitting down and telling them, telling him, and I don't know, I'm going to sound really arrogant saying this, but sitting down with Duncan and saying, you have no idea how much value I've added to, to this research group. Like if I'm talking about the, the students that came up after me, I don't want to mention names, but, but two in particular who are fantastic PhD students about to finish. Um, you, might, you might be able to see who I'm, who I'm talking about. But, you know, I, I was supporting them uh, coming up. Not that I felt that that was a chore. I love to help these guys. They are two, two male students, I'll just say that. Um, just they, they, they ask great questions. They're hard workers. They're keen on the details as well. Um, so th that was a great place. They're great friends of mine to this day as well. So that was, that was a great part of uh, my PhD experience was helping those honor students, um, 
being being a senior PhD, showing them the ropes, so to speak, things like that. And and you can't fucking value that, like in terms of you know that doesn't go on my CV. Oh yeah, I trained these two honor students, and they end up becoming like go getter PhDs. And uh, what the fuck is that worth, right? I can't get a publication based on that, but how much fucking value does that add to, to a research group, right? That doesn't get uh, equated in this key performance, performance index value. And I never, I never expressed that to Duncan, um, but it's, it's, it's so sad, you know, I'm like you could sure, have someone. I'm sure yeah. he does mm-hmm. understand. Oh yes. I'm sure he does. Uh-huh. And because when you do put in value and when people do feel it, okay, so I'm going to, I'm going to cut that into something that's real. That's been on my mind. So mm-hmm. I think it really depends on what you want. So do you want your value to be recognized by these people or do you want to be valued by those people that like you helped directly? So that's a, that's a two different things. So obviously if you want your values to be recognized by your boss, right? Mm-hmm. You still have that employer employee mentality. It's still the, you know, you're still not the own, your own boss in a way because sure. yeah. you're, you're relying on an external person or external environment to validate what you've given, what you give as your value. Yes. Yes. Or do you, do you like, you know, your value already. And that's how, mm-hmm. that's how I always tell uh, colleagues at work is to know your value. Because if the, if the employer doesn't recognize your values, if they don't appreciate your values, mm-hmm. then you don't deserve them. Yes. Uh, because that's it's, a good. It's, mm-hmm. Yeah. No, yes, I, no, I, don't. Yeah. Sorry, keep interrupting each other. Uh, that those whole that whole concept, those ideas, are great things to think about. And that is something I never had a conversation with with Duncan about my supervisor. And yes, you're right. Uh, this was something that I never really saw in the in the academics at university. Not to say that it wasn't something that they valued, but having a sustainable research group for me that was a big thing about being a phd for me um being able to thank uh duncan for securing funding and his supervising of me during my phd the, the best way i could thank him was to create a sustainable research group so that the the next generation of students if you will uh could thrive in you know um, a, a helpful, that sort of supportive, you know, uh, research environment, not no fucking bullshit sort of politics and sneaky games. And I, I'm surprised to hear that sabotage went on. I never experienced it, but fucking hell, PhD is fucking stressful enough. If you've got people in your group who are sabotaging your experiments, my goodness, if that happened to me, I, I would, I would have, like released everything if, if that ever happened. Um, but, but we never experienced that in our group. Um, but yeah, having that sustainable research group and it's fine. Like I, I'm, I didn't do that to, 
you know, be recognized. That's something, like you mentioned before, being helpful, like, that's just, I guess that's you could say you part are. of my, exactly, yeah. yeah. Yes. And, and to be honest, um, I feel I gain a lot from helping people. Um, I learn, it reinforces um, what I'm teaching, and obviously it builds good relationships. It just makes you a better person overall. So like, yeah, I'm helping them, but I'm also helping myself. That's what I've come to to learn recently. And, and I've kind of coined this phrase. That might not work for everyone, but um, there, there is no difference between the highest form of selfishness and the highest form of selflessness. Now, obviously, people think that being selfish and being selfless are on opposite ends of the spectrum. But for me... It's the same thing for me. What is best for me? Like personally, what I can gain the most is by helping those around me. And I think if more people could understand that, the, the world would be a great place. Like if, you know, normally when you think of a selfish person, it's a person who's, who's always out for themselves and looking out for like how they could benefit. And for me, what's best for me, like how I could benefit the most is helping those around me. That's just what I've come to find from my experience, from the scenarios, the people I've met. Now it could be different from other people. If you're in a toxic um, situation where people don't value your input or things like that, then you might want to just look out for yourself. But um, at, at our research group there, the teachers, the students that I interact with, like I found like helping them out is, is great for me like and, and, and I struggle to even think like how could I do something that would benefit only me like I struggle to think what I could do like I'm married now as well that makes it even harder to to think that way um because it's all about the people around me and I'm I'm privileged enough to to be able to support people whether it's with my time, even just listening, man, my goodness, just being there to listen to someone is, is a huge thing in on itself, let alone help them with um, whether it's a scientific problem, that's sort of where I'm trained for, but even just helping out where I can, like, like we're doing right now. I, I love to do it. In fact, you know, people feel like, you know, they don't want to spend time with someone or they feel that their energy is drained when they do this or this and that. Man, when I, when I talk to you or other people, especially on these topics, I feel energized. Oh, man. I, I gain 100%. energy when I have these conversations. You know what I mean? Like not having these conversations. If I was just sitting on my laptop, just, I don't know, designing something, that, well, that wouldn't be so draining. But that would be more draining than me just expressing myself out like this. And like, if, if, I don't want to sound like I'm bragging here, but, but I, don't, I don't drink coffee. And like, for me... I, I can't understand it when people say like they can't function without their coffee and this and that, or whether it be other things like energy drinks, man, like we were saying before about what words you tell yourself and how that's important. When people say that, what they're saying is that their, their energy is external. What they need to stimulate themselves is outside of themselves. And I don't feel that about me. What I need to stimulate me to get me energized, it's all in here. It's internal. I look towards myself to get myself excited, energized, things like that. I don't drink coffee and things like that. You know, sometimes I do get tired. That's not, if I do rant on, um, I think one mistake that people might have is that they think that being tired is a weakness. 
and it's fine. Everyone gets tired. Like if take a nap, if you need to, if at the end of the day you're exhausted, that's a good thing. That means you've, you've worked hard. You shouldn't go to bed feeling energized. You should be tired. Not that for me personally, that's, that's when I get the best night's sleep is when I'm fucking exhausted. I don't want to do anything else. I just want to go to bed and, and get up. And you know, people who drink coffee, like you shouldn't be drinking coffee in the afternoons, but like if you're feeling that slight tiredness, it's fine. You're supposed to feel that. And then when you get to bed, you'll be exhausted. You'll sleep like a baby. Right. I think this, this, there might be some idea that we should always be energized and things like that. And well, we should be, we should be focused, especially if we're doing things like driving, but I don't seek these sort of external things to get me excited. Um, things like that. Fuck, Man, I love it. To be honest, <laughs> this is the reason why I do this. It's the, Yo. it's the energy that I get from people when talking about something they're passionate about. Even just even talking about life, I think mm-hmm. I'm so grateful that people around me and the people that I surround myself are on mm. this fucking amazing same level mindset of yes. just wanting to improve themselves, do something crazy with their life. Okay, the word crazy, like we were talking about this, yes. right? it's the word crazy. Yes. So sometimes I use the word crazy because for me, a crazy could also mean a different thing. It doesn't always mm-hmm. mean like mentally ill, like a kind mm-hmm. of traditional way. For me, sometimes yes. crazy could mean like something gnarly, which also the word that doesn't really translate to exactly what it means, right? Something sure. that's something that's like, like I don't know, not the against norm. the norm. Yes. Against the norm, that's the one. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you keep like? Do you have a routine in the morning that? that you tell yourself or that you something you do to get into that energy, that root, that mindset of fuck yeah, I'm going to go get what I want today. Yeah. Actually, it's funny. You should say that to be honest, I, I, I do get up in the morning and feel that fuck. I don't want to get out of bed. I still <laughs> yes. feel that. Yeah. And even now, like it's so fucking funny. Like now I'm like, I'm fucking I'm so like awake, right? I feel good, right? Yes, but why was it this morning I felt like, ah, <laughs> oh, fuck this day, you know? And and this is this is what I do. I think like, man, if you've got like what you're doing in the morning, you shouldn't just you shouldn't change that. Like if it's working for you, you should keep at it. But I'm just gonna say what I do in the morning. Yeah, I, and my, my wife will know that she's just sitting right there. I set my alarm to like 6.30 a.m. I don't, I don't actually get up at 6.30 a.m., but I'll just um, be thinking about things. It's kind of like visualization, like what I'm, what I'm going to do today, what are the priorities, do I need to, uh, is there a meeting? That's a big one. Uh, who will I be talking to? And just kind of play the day in my head. It might take about 30 or 40 minutes, but just run over the things like, um, what, what are the things I'll be talking about with this person or doing here, things like that. And that, that's something that my dad, I didn't know it at the time, but just a few years ago, he told me that he, he did that. And, I, and we never had a conversation about that, but he did that as well. He, he still to this day gets up at, at a bit early and just spends that sort of 30, 40 minutes in bed, just going over things. And it's kind of like running a simulation of the day, like that's making sure you... Amazing. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. But it's, 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 you know, kind of, 
I don't know if you know the term um, cognitive dissonance, but it, it means to... Psychology term, right? Yes. It means it's a feeling you get when you perform an action that goes against um, what you believed about yourself. So mm. basically all of your teenage years is cognitive dissonance. Like you might've thought of yourself as like, a cool person or whatever. And then you might, when you're with your friends, you might've said something awkward and there's some silence. That awkwardness is, is part of cognitive dissonance because you felt that tension, you thought you were fitting in, but then your actions um, were counter to that. So oh, okay. um, what, what I meant by that cognitive dissonance is at the start of the day, um, you sort of want to tell yourself that you're a productive person, right? Everyone wants to believe that they're a productive person, right? But then you don't want to do actions that, that prove that you're lazy, mm. right? Because that will go against your belief and you'll feel cognitive dissonance. So instead of getting up in the morning, which would be the productive things to do, I run the simulation in my head, which convinces myself, and you seem to think that it's a productive thing to do, but actually it's also a lazy thing to do because I get to stay in bed for an extra... 30, 40 minutes, right? Not actually have to get up. But my brain doesn't allow me to think that way because if I did think that way, it would be counter to this productive image that I have with, with myself. So it's kind of like uh, saving myself from cognitive dissonance that I do this run the simulation uh, strategy in the morning. Whether I, I feel it's quite good for me, but maybe I'd be fine if I just got out of bed and then actually just brushed my teeth and didn't run through all those things, but it works for me. Um, so I keep doing it. But yeah, I think I do that a lot, actually. Um, I, I'm, I'm quite a prolific procrastinator. In my past, a lot of it, a lot of my procrastination went into gaming, but I've weaned myself off gaming, yeah, for, for quite a while now. Not that gaming is exclusively a bad thing, can be very useful. Um, but now I procrastinate doing other stuff, like I'd watch YouTube videos about business or uh, design something on Tinkercad or it's kind of like useful procrastination. Like I know I'm supposed to create this presentation for a meeting, but that, that meeting's like a week away. And, you know, I won't be procrastinating playing games, but you know, I'd be designing something else or checking out coding here. So that's, that's really good. If you can get into that space where if you know you're a procrastinator, at least you're doing like useful things with your procrastination time. And that's really good for creativity as well, especially if you're doing lots of different stuff, you never know when those skills could come in handy, right? You might enter a situation and um, you, you, you be, you'll immediately know what skills are useful because you've been spending time doing this or that or the other thing. Like sometimes I do origami as well um, because I do teach students Right now we're doing school holiday program because it's school holidays. One of the things we do is we do origami while we wait for all the students to come in. So the students can come in anytime between 9 and 9.30. So parents are going to work at different times. So we have that transition time before the school holiday session time starts where we do origami. So I've been doing origami and actually I've thought of some ideas that are where origami could be useful for. I can't reveal them now because I think it is patentable material, but it's quite exciting. Amazing. Oh, well, we'll have to find out once it's been patented. Yes. Love it, man. Love it. Have you got a name for your business? 
Ah, yes. There's an interesting situation about the name. So the original name of the business, well, actually, the legal name of the business is Citizen Science Limited. I don't know if you know about the concept of citizen science, but it's when um, just normal, everyday people can um, do a project that helps an academic with their research. Usually it's centered around things in uh, ecology or environmental studies. So um, people who might live in an area where there might be a certain uh, endangered bird population, they might, uh, an academic might go out and have a town meeting where they encourage people to do sightings, things like that. So that, that's typically what citizen science is. But I kind of want to flip the term. So right now it's a very top-down approach where the um, academics tell the public what type of experiments or work they could do to, to help them. But I want to flip the whole thing and give people their own instruments to ask their own scientific questions or just measure things in their everyday environment uh, to make better um, informed decisions, especially around sun safety. That's why the flagship product is a UV sensor. It's quite universal. It's a universal problem throughout um, New Zealand and also very big problem in Australia as well. So that, that opens me up to that market um, in the future, probably, hopefully sometime next year, maybe the year after. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so that's the name there, Citizen Science. But when I met with some IP lawyers, uh, they were kind of questionable about the name Citizen Science, getting a trademark for that. We did run a search on the available trademarks. It is a very sort of contested name uh, in the electronics realm. Um, now I could still use the name as my business name, but I can't put that on electronics. And one of the big sort of contenders is the, the watch brand uh, Citizen. If you know that watch yes. brand. Citizen, yeah. Watch yeah. Brand. Yes. yes. Um, but they've got, they've got that trademark for all electronics. So that was a big thing that, and I didn't want to fucking start my business off with lawsuits and wasting money going to court and shit like that. I need to put that money into improving the product. So I've come up with another brand. Yes, you can call it a brand that my company owns. So it's kind of like, um, you know, people think of Google as a company, but actually there's, there's no it's such Alphabet. company as wow. Google. Very good. Yes, Google is owned by Alphabet. So it's kind of like that. The com my company is called Citizen Science, but it owns a brand called Spinoza. So that's the name of, I guess you could say my trading name. That's how I want people to know uh, my products by is the name Spinoza. And that, that name comes from a, uh, a Dutch philosopher who lived in the 1600s, who basically shared an idea that we've been talking about here about uh, getting people engaged in science, uh, thinking more about the world around them, being less superstitious, and try, trying to learn things, sharing ideas, things like that. So I named the, the product after uh, his, his philosophy, well, his name, um, but he wasn't well regarded in his time. Um, a lot of religious authorities uh, banned the publication of his books, and he was even excommunicated from Amsterdam where he lived. So he wasn't well regarded at his time, but like a lot of uh, sort of those enlightenment radical yeah. philosophers, they yeah. were very ahead of their time. But if you think about it, at that time, 
at Spinoza's time, the telescope had just been invented. And I think when he published the ethics, uh, Isaac Newton was about 12 years old. So they didn't have calculus, the laws of motion, things like that. So saying this idea that everyone should engage in science wouldn't have been very practical back then, given how expensive even doing simple experiments were. But in today's time, with today's technology, there's, there's no excuse. It's not a matter of ability. It's a matter of will. So that's one of the things that motivates me is that um, the price of this tech is going down, the sophistication is going up. So, you know, starting a business, it's always a gamble. But that's what I think that I'm betting on is I'm betting on the price of technology going down and the sophistication of technology going up. And with the way things are going, even with COVID and Trump and, uh, you know, uh, Brexit and all these things, I st it's still a safe bet to bet on technology improving. So if you, if you can get into an area where the tech still might be a little bit cost prohibitive, prohibited, but you know that cost will come down. It's like Tesla, right? When they started off, mm -hmm. battery prices were, yeah, compared to nowadays, sky high, but they were betting on the technology improving. And obviously they've got a lot of researchers working on getting that improvement, but because they were doing that, you know, back in 2008 when they started, they now have got like pretty much a near insurmountable lead on the competition. And that, that's what I'm hoping that I'm achieving here uh, with, with these products. I've got a whole lot of other backlogged ideas as well. But I think, yeah, um, getting in now on these things, even like, it's almost not, yeah, I would say it's almost, like you could just, sorry, I'm trying to think of the best way to describe this, but even like wacky ideas, you could just scribble down. There's no cost in just scribbling these downs. And because we've, we've had experience with PhD, we can ask the question, what is the mechanism to make this wacky idea possible, right? If it's to do with molecules, what interactions between molecules would allow this wacky idea to, to occur? What, what software needs to happen? What um, hardware components do I need, you know? And you can piece it down, like we were saying, make it break, break these wacky ideas down to their simplest form and, and, bring them together, make them more complex. It might not be at the level that it is affordable enough to do, but it's entirely possible within 10 years that whatever that idea was will become more accessible. And you can be part of making that idea more accessible, right? It's not just sitting back and waiting for, you know, Silicon Valley or some, some, people in, in India or China or, or wherever the tech's happening, it can happen in Auckland. It can happen in Sydney. You know, it, does, it doesn't matter where you are. If you've got an internet connection, you can learn stuff. You can do these things. And that, that's what I'm excited about in the future. We're going to be seeing these ideas prop out from, from everywhere else as well. That's, wow. Like, that's actually so, like, motivational because... For those that, you know, that believe in you have to study a certain subject to, to lead mm. that. So, you know, how you talked about um, in our early conversation that someone asked you whether you've done some studies in digital 
um, what is it, digital, digital uh, tech. tech, digital tech. Yes. And you said, no, I did a PhD in chemistry. And the person just gave you this kind of like, they couldn't figure it out. Like, why mm -hmm. is he doing this when he's not got the qualification? So now it's so interesting that a lot of people are so focusing on this qualification, qualification. Mm -hmm. But there are people like you that, as an example, that's just going against the norm. It's a non-linear way of getting a job or, or making your own career. Yep. So that, I think that's shifting. I think with limited jobs out there now, especially all the jobs are now being you know, replaced by autonomous um, instruments and, and let's mm -hmm. say AI, but there's nothing to, scare, nothing to be scared about because that is, what mm -hmm. that is what capitalism is. A true capitalism mm -hmm. is essentially getting rid of all the boring ass jobs so that people should just use their creativity to do whatever they like to do. That, that's fun for them and that's innovative. Yep. Because without innovation, yep. I don't think we'll be able to grow as, as, a, as a community. We'll mm -hmm. be still stuck in the same old thinking. And, and I, I think that's amazing, Ray, honestly. Like it's always, I'm not even saying it, I'm not saying it just because I'm on this podcast, but I've, I've been saying this to you, you know, ever since, man. Like it's fucking, it's fucking amazing. Oh, thanks, man. Yeah, it's yeah. fucking amazing. Um, I've always been into to learning different stuff and this whole, like, I've, I always just laughed at myself going through PhD, hearing things like, you know, we should be specializing in a niche area, this whole realm of, like, hyper-specializing. Man, that, I never, like, I didn't want anything to do with, I mean, it's good to know things in great detail, but dedicating your whole life to a tiny area and not branching out. My goodness, that, that to me is, is like a life half lived. Like there's just so much more and so much more you could achieve even with basic knowledge in different areas. So I've never been into this idea of um, hyper specializing. I remember like being a teenager, just being absolutely fascinated by a man named uh, Bruce Dickinson, who's the lead singer of Iron Maiden. And like Iron Maiden, if, if you're not into metal, you might not know, but it's, it's Iron Maiden's one of the sort of core heavy metal bands um, coming out of England. But, um, and they've sold like many, many records. They're not like super mainstream. You won't hear them on TV and things like that. But if, if you know your heavy metal, then you certainly should know Iron Maiden. But uh, Bruce Dickinson, obviously, he's the lead singer of a very successful band. But he also did a whole lot of other things. He was an uh, Olympic-class fencer. So he used to fence at a level that could qualify him from the Olympics. He has his pilot license and regularly flies the uh, Boeing 747 of his band's, uh, his band's plane. Uh, he's like a, a radio DJ, like at a high level. Um, does like a TV show producing, things like that. I think he does a couple other things. And so it's like, and even, I don't know if you remember in our chemistry lectures, but when they teach us about the history of these scientists, it, all, it would always be like this person, you know, invented like five or six laws to do with gases or some form of chemistry. And then it like, it also turned out they were like uh, a high level a war historian or they were prime minister of England or they were like all these other things like what they did in the science was just a, a sliver 
of their life, yes. you know, and, and, you know, scientists look up to these, these people, mostly men, but there are, there are influential uh, female scientists as well. And we think of them as being solely dedicated to their science. And when you read their fucking biography, you know, <laughs> it's actually a small section. Even um, Isaac Newton, who, who invented calculus and the laws of motion, actually wrote a lot about um, religion, theology. He was interested in a whole lot of different things as well. But people only, well, scientists only recognize his work, obviously because it was so influential in physics. But if he was, if he was alive today, he, he wouldn't solely want to talk about that. And I think there's this sort of myth that when we look back at these, I guess you could call them OG scientists, that all they wanted to talk about was fucking science all the time. Sure, okay, they'd have a time and place for science, and then they'd want to talk about other things. And, and Nelson Mandela was actually a key example of that. There was a famous interview of him, uh, obviously post-apartheid, and I think it was even post his presidential days and interviewers would obviously ask him about his time in prison and the struggle and things like that. And, and he famously once said to a journalist, I don't want to talk about that. Let's talk about boxing. <laughs> so it's just, and the interview was like taken aback. And, but when you really think about it, like even someone like Nelson Mandela, he, he was a human, right? He's got other interests as well. Like, he wanted to talk about other things. Obviously, he went through a huge um, struggle and obviously led uh, South Africa to become more free and democratic. Um, but he had other interests. He, right. he loved boxing, right. right? And he wanted to talk about boxing. So, yeah, this, this whole, I, I would say even a myth about hyper-specialization, it's, it's just stupid. Nobody wants to talk about the same thing all the time right? Why should we dedicate our whole lives to one thing all the time? But for me, it's not even like what I'm doing. Like people might say, oh, you did your PhD in chemistry and now you've got a digital tech company. Like what a huge difference. But for me, it's not, it's not even a huge difference. Like I feel like I'm still using the same skills I did in my PhD. I'm still communicating my ideas the way I did. I'm still thinking on that level, understanding mechanisms. It's just the same thing I was doing in my PhD. Now I'm doing it here, learning more skills. And for me, it's not a big difference. And I think a lot of people who are on these sort of non-linear career paths for them, they wouldn't even think it's that different. But when you look at another person, or when another person look, looks in on what they're doing, they just see that job and they say, wow, what a different job. But actually, they could be applying those skills in a new area and succeeding in that area because it's not an area where those skills were normally applied. And so I, just like that, I, I wouldn't think of what I'm doing as being different. Um, like you might remember during your PhD, days, um, some students were able to, it was very rare, but some students were able to make spin-off companies based on their yes. research. Um, I like to think of this company that I'm working on is a spin-off company based on my experience. It's not, not, it's not a spin-off company based on my, my research. I can't apply that research to what I'm doing here, but I can certainly apply the experience I gathered during my PhD. And the good thing about that is, um, the university can't claim intellectual property over my experiences. That's what I paid for. So they have no rights over what I'm doing now. 
uh, fortunately for that. Otherwise, we'd be living in a place quite similar to North Korea if they could claim rights over our thoughts. Anyway, we won't, we won't steer the conversation that way. But yeah, um, for me, nonlinearity, it's about taking skills, taking experiences and applying them elsewhere. And like you were talking about with automation, and I know it's very rich for us to say like being in privileged positions with, that's you right. know, yeah, being employed, things like that, just to say to someone that's got redundant, hey, why don't you just use your skills in some other areas? I understand it's, um, there is a challenge there, but yes, of course. especially yeah, if you can find something that you're passionate about, you might've worked in a different area, if you can find a way to utilize those skills in a, in a way you're passionate about in an area where people might not normally think like you do, my goodness, you can achieve quite a lot. And one of the sort of mistakes I had starting this, uh, what I'm doing with my teaching and these products is I thought that science teachers think like scientists and they don't. It's funny. Not that, not that it's a fault on their part, Science teachers think like teachers. That obviously that now it comes to me like, yes, that makes sense. The biggest concerns that teachers have is their students' needs. Are they um are the students absorbing the content? Um and scientists some sometimes they think about that stuff, but they're thinking about the mechanisms, how to design experiments, how to learn more, what questions are sort of high priority to be answered. And that's not the thinking of a science teacher. And you shouldn't expect it to be because their job is to teach students science, right? So that's where I feel I, I fit into a good place because having come from that background of um, solving problems, asking questions, building solutions, I can now come into an area like science education, but hopefully education in general, and solve the problems that, that teachers have here or create new learning opportunities, things like that. Yeah, I think this will be very valuable um, for those that are still, you know, quite lost in their career path because mm. um, it's so, I think it's easy to, to marginalize, well, Kanye uses this word a lot, marginalize. Because he hates mm -hmm. it, right? He hates being called just a rapper, you know, mm -hmm. or just a mute. Like he, okay, that's another conversation because I, I always yes. bring Kanye into this because mm -hmm. people think of him as just someone who's crazy and just rants about stuff. But actually what he's trying to say is that he doesn't want to be boxed as this one person. You yeah. Know? yeah. And that's exactly what you just explained is that, mm -hmm. you know, you don't need to be, I don't know. I feel, I feel life is just more fun if you don't limit yourself or categorize yourself as just one person, you know, exactly. if you have many skills and if you want to venture onto different things. And I think it's, maybe it's our, it's our privilege as well, but you know, during our time and because of our privilege, maybe we should make the most of it. Yes. Yes. That's um, the other thing. We shouldn't get into a trap of thinking that, we are the rule but rather the exception but that's that's part of like giving back as well and, and mm. i hope to do that if if my business makes good sales and you know give funding to schools maybe even get into scholarships things like that giving back to make situations like ours 
less of the exception and more more the rule, right? And I think, as you mentioned, with automation and the future of the workplace, this has to be the rule. This can't be the exception anymore, right? Yes. Basically, everyone needs yep. to be on, on that buzz. Yes. Um, yes. Yeah. But it's still, it's still kind of early days. You can, you can sort of get away with it. But mm. the, the kids coming out from high school, um, most schools that I've been to are teaching that um, multiple skills and understanding that sort of love of learning. Uh, not so much getting to the fundamentals, but it, it is there, not at the level that I want to take it to. So hopefully I can take it to that level um, with students as well. But that, that vibe is coming off. School is a very different place uh, to when we went there. Sometimes I feel like uh, a lot of adults should actually be going back to high school, even like, um, even like year five and six, a lot of adults should, should be going back. Mm, well, obviously that can't happen, but. Imagine if you could imagine that. Yeah. Imagine. Like, hey, I'm yeah. just going to go back to high school. Um, yeah. It'd be quite detrimental for the children's <laughs> development though, to have a bunch of adults around because they wouldn't be able to be themselves, especially if it was your parents. Oh my, you know, <laughs> if your parents were around while you were going to school. Yeah. That kind of does make sense. Like, you know how we had some students at uni that were quite young, like there were those like really smart kids that got into uni really early, but they just couldn't. Yeah, the prodigies. Yeah. But they couldn't party with people. They couldn't really do the adulty stuff that they, they wanted to do. So it's, I guess it's the same thing what you just talked about. Like it, it, it's probably detrimental to their, to their growth in their, their, their years, right? Because they're exposed to this environment that's so different. Um, but I mean, I don't know. Like, I mean, that was just a random thought. But um, yes. anyway, so to... I think that was an amazing, um, uh, just like story of how you came to be uh, or where you're at now, just from, you know, being a, um, a part-time stats tutor to, yes. to creating your own company. I think that's a great story and I, I wish honestly all the best and um, Thank you very much. Keep, keep, keep me updated on, on how yep. it goes. Um, yeah, I actually, should be, yeah. I've I've been really quiet about it for the last year and a half. That's just the kind of person I am. I'm not one for building hype and, you know, promoing stuff. Like I, let, I want to let the work way. speak for itself, you yes. know, um, yes. if people like it, they like it. If you don't, that's fine too. Um, you know, I'm not here to convert anyone, things like that. This is just what I think is important. What I think is valuable. If you agree, awesome. You know, yeah. Oh, no, that's totally. Um, just to wrap up the podcast uh, or the session today, um, I've always, I always like asking this question. So what advice would you give your 10-year-old younger self and also 10-year future self? Yes. So my 10-year-old younger self, I'd be 19. I think that's second year of uni. I think what I've realized in, in the last sort of five or six years coming out of PhD, things like that, looking back on my teenage years, starting university, one thing that I always had in my mind during those teenage years and early uni years was not to fuck up my life. Mm. 
all the sort of decisions I made, I was trying very hard not to ruin my life. And the reason why I say that is, I guess, from the schools I went to, I witnessed many people make decisions uh, based on short-term gratification and end up having to pay severely long-term, whether it's things like getting excessive loans to pay for dumb shit like cars or holidays, things like that. So I'd always been thinking of not fucking up my life. That was a sort of big frame of mind, even at 19, even, even during PhD as well. But recently, I mean, when I say recently, I mean in the last sort of five or six years, I've been able to relax myself a bit and know and trust myself, mm. trust that I have built a character that I wouldn't say cannot fuck my life up, but, you know, just, just express myself more freely and trust the habits that I've made, uh, the sort of frame of mind where I'm coming from with these things that I'm not going to say something dumb or uh, I'm not going to get into some behavior that's going to spiral into something that wastes a large chunk of my life. And that's, that's fortunately come from being mindful of that through those teenage years, because yes, a lot of the times the decisions you make there, especially the people you meet there, they can keep you in a trap for a very, very long time. I, I was fortunate enough to have been mindful of that. But if I was to say something to my younger self, maybe, well, I'm quite happy with the way things have turned out. So maybe this, this might not be good advice, but it would be to, to trust yourself more and to be proud of the person you, you've made yourself into and to express that to others. Because from, from what I've felt now, people love that. They love hearing about this. And, and I love to hear that from others as well. So, um, yeah, just having that trust in yourself. I think that's a big part of being an adult is that obviously we should think about our actions and, and what we're saying as well. But having that uh, ability to know that our baseline character is, is strong and that it's there and that we won't uh, devo devo devolve into some person that we've been fearing this whole time and maybe that's not good advice for everyone but for me I feel like I can break free from that like I've, I've built a strong foundation there of my character and I can start expressing myself things like that start learning more just putting myself out there because I was very introverted and a lot of it was based on fear around ruining my life um that's for your other point what I'd, what I'd say to my 10-year um, future, future self. Yes. Wow, I'd hope I'm still as passionate as I am today, if not more. I, like to, I, I could say right, I, right now, I like to think I will, but we never know how, how this life works. Um, firstly, I, sh I should say, I hope I'm still alive in 10 years as well. We never know what could happen there. I do try to eat healthy foods and uh, do my 20 minutes of walking, things like that. Be mindful of that. Stress as well. Um, yeah, it's just not a big one, but it's you should be mindful for me. Um, so hopefully I'm around for one. Um, but yeah, just keep maintaining that health because even in 10 years' time, I'll be 39, you know, one year away from 40. That's still incredibly young. There's so much that can be achieved even at that age. And hopefully I would have built a platform 
between now and 10 years time to be able to achieve even more at that age? Because a lot of things like we don't, we don't start, nobody, as much as people say this, nobody starts off from scratch. Everyone starts off with something there to, to build them up from. Right. And like even with now with my business, I would never say to someone that I started off from scratch. Right? I had so much experience from my PhD and my father has helped me. I've saved a lot of, of money as well to help with that. So it's not like I could just say to someone, oh, yeah, quit your job and do this. No, there's a whole lot that has, has built up to this point. So my future self in 10 years time, I hope they can keep that person can keep building on what, what I'm doing now. And I would have the means to be able to do more. That's, that's ties back to what we were talking about before of how people want to, you know, get rich quick or do something big now. And like we mentioned that Jordan Peterson quote, are you big enough to start small? Right? Well, you know, I'm starting small with this, with this company, working on building networks with teachers, having a good reputation. I want my brand to be known for uh, a quality, a relevant, engaging product, not just shit that we just dump at your school's door and you have to figure it out. We'll be supporting um, teachers. I'll be available for calls. There'll be online support material, things like that. And that's the sort of small, right? Working on that, building that up. So that when I am 39 or 40, I would have so much more to, to build with. And not just financial resources, but reputation's the big one as well. Having that trust, knowing that when you say to someone, hey, we're gonna do this, that based on your track record, they're gonna fucking do it, right? Because every box they've checked, every time they made a promise, they've, they've followed through. And being able to have that is so powerful. Uh, I mean, what Warren Buffett mentions this in his um, shareholders meeting that um, we, we can afford to lose money. We've got a lot of money. What we can't afford to lose is reputation. We can't afford to lose a shred of reputation. And you see this time and time again, whether it's on Twitter or Facebook, you know, it's like every fucking week you see a fall from grace from some celebrity or some uh, I don't know. I don't follow these things, but you see them pop up on the headlines and, and reputation is, is a big currency these days. It almost doesn't even fucking matter how much money you have. It's how reputable you are. And unfortunately there are, I guess you could say despicable people online who just want to tear people down. Um, but some of it, some of it is deserved. Some, some of those celebrities have been a bit mean or should be put in their place things like that. So yeah, that whole starting small, I think reputation's a big one. Starting off with making promises you can keep, like we were mentioning before about how your words are important, not just the promises you make to other people, promises you make to yourself is a big one. Making sure that when you tell yourself you're gonna do something, you do it, right? That's, that's a big thing going to the gym. Not that I can talk in that area, but people who do go to the gym. Um, yeah, just, just keeping true on that promises and, and starting off small, like making promises you know you can keep to yourself, trusting yourself and then, then challenging yourself there. Amazing, man. Amazing. Yeah, I think this is a banger. This, I don't know. Awesome. I think we definitely have more to talk about, but I think just with time, we'll, uh, we'll save it for another, another session. Um, yes. 
but thank you yeah. once again, Ray, for for telling us your current uh, story of of what you what you're up to after um, since you finished your PhD. And um, no, it's really really inspiring actually to hear what you're doing. No problem, Paul. Thanks for having me. It's like I mentioned. It's it's just great to to talk about these things and. You know, I feel energized now. Maybe five minutes after, after I we end the meeting, that tiredness might hit me, and I'm gonna sleep like a baby. So that's great too. Yeah. 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 I hope it's well, been valuable for whoever's well, listening as well. It's not just us been rambling on. <laughs> no, definitely. Um, awesome. All right, man. Well, I'll catch you another time. Hope you have a good sleep. Yep. You too. <laughs> um, you're, you're two hours, two hours in front, right? So it's. 747 uh, there, right? Yeah. Oh, so you still got a bit more time. That's anyway, great. yeah. Thanks, Paul. Catch Alrighty. you next time. See ya. See ya, Ray. Bye bye. Take care.